Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Galatians chapter 4 and verses 8 to 20. Galatians chapter 4 and verses 8 to 20. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 20. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am a Afraid I I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Here this morning in our text, Paul writes as a, a pastor perplexed. Right? He's at a loss trying to understand what has taken place amongst the saints in the churches of Galatia that have brought them to the point that they are at today. And what Paul experiences and the the emotions that he expresses though are many ways uh, a portrait of what all pastors, if you're in the ministry long enough, uh, feel and experience. And that is uh, sorrow and sadness over a person or or people who you labored over and who you loved and who you believed to be your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And all of a sudden, no longer appear to be a member of the family anymore. Right? No longer believing as they once believed. No longer walking as they once walked. Uh, but you don't have to be a, an officer in the church to likewise, though, be perplexed in the manner in which Paul is perplexed. Because oftentimes I think right, parents can, can feel that same anxiety. Saying, how could this be with respect to their children? You raise your children in a particular way or manner and all of a sudden, right, their, their demeanor, their attitude, everything about them is, has changed and you, you don't know what happened to bring that about. Right? That is something that even you might have feel with your friends. Maybe you had a friend growing up that you were so close to and all of a sudden they, they switched up on you and they're acting completely different than they used to act and you thinking to yourself, how did this happen? Or you can't figure out why it is. It just doesn't make sense to you. And like Paul, you, you kind of rack your brain right, trying to understand like, what, what brought this about. Oftentimes results in you questioning yourself, doesn't it? Was it something I said to them? Uh, was it something that I did? Could I have done more that this would not have happened? 
But what is so unnerving about the change that has taken place amongst these saints is that if they have turned, if they are no longer walking in the way that they once walked, if they no longer are believing the things that they once believed, then then their eternal security is in jeopardy. And so as pastor over these people who planted these churches, who sees them as his spiritual children, it hurts Paul to see them hurting themselves. It hurts Paul to, to see them perhaps destroying their soul by walking away from the faith and denying the gospel. And yet it's that love as pastor that we also read in this letter today that, that kind of pours out of the heart of Paul as we read about the, the concern that he has. Yet he does it with such gentleness, doesn't he? That he's not quick to cut them off. He's not quick to cast them aside or identify them as unbelievers, even though every indication seems to tell him that they are. But everything that they at one time said and did that pointed them in the direction of, of Paul saying, yes, they are believers. They are doing no more. Right? Everything they believed, they are believing no more. The way that they once acted, the affections they once had towards Paul, they don't have anymore. And so this causes Paul to have much concern for these saints today. And we see that in our text. In fact, the first statement of concern then that Paul makes, we see in verses 8 through 11. Look with me there again, please. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And with that, we're going to look at our first point this morning, which we'll call Paul's concern over backtracking. Right? Paul's concern over backtracking. Here what we see in these first verses is, is Paul reminding these saints uh, what they were at one time missing. And then he tells them uh, the heights to which they experienced. Right, when Paul came to them and proclaimed the word, right, he wants to, to contrast those two things. This is what you at one time didn't have. Right? This is where you were in life. Right? When I came and I preached the gospel to you, these are the heights that you were lifted up to. What does he say, though, that they were missing prior to the preaching of the word? He says that they were a people who, who did not know God. Right? They did not know God. They were ignorant of God. What worse condition can there be than to be ignorant of God? What worse condition can there be to to be ignorant of God as Father? What worse condition can there be to be ignorant of the, the grace and mercy of God? Of salvation, in the way of salvation, in the Son of God. To know that God exists, brothers and sisters, is not enough. That's not knowing God. There's a, there's a twofold knowledge of God that people have. There's a natural knowledge of God that all people have, that, that God exists. But that's not enough. That's not sufficient. It's not sufficient to look up to the, the heavenlies and to say, I know God exists. 
And to even believe that He is wonderful and, and good and powerful and wise and to bow down and to worship that God because nature doesn't give you sufficient revelation about the God that you are to worship and trust and believe in. Right? That's, that's the knowledge that these saints had. They had a, a natural knowledge of God, but they did not truly know God. Right? The God who only can be revealed to us by special revelation, that further revelation that they didn't have until Paul came to them. Right? And so this was the condition, Paul says, of the saints in the churches of Galatia. They were without God. Right? They did not know Him salvifically. Right? They didn't know Him as He reveals Himself in the Word of God. And so, what did they do? They, they worshipped other things that were not gods. As if they were gods. I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that that is a natural consequence of not knowing God. Right? It's a natural consequence of not knowing God. Right? It naturally leads us into superstition and idolatry. Right? To not know God leads us into superstition and idolatry. Why? Well, because innately, right, man knows that they have been created to worship. And so man is going to worship something, aren't they? Right? People around the world do this all the time. This is why you can go to all different areas in the world and you find people worshiping the sun or the moon or animals. Or you see them worshiping something that they have formed and fashioned by their hands. But false worship always presupposes a false understanding of God. False worship always presupposes a false understanding of God. And, and that's true of even right, more established and organized religion as well. Right? That's true of Islam. It's true of Judaism. It's true of Roman Catholicism. And all of these false religions, right? they're enslaved to their gods, aren't they? Because these are enslaving religions. Right? They're enslaving religions that, that keep people constantly busy doing things. Right? Enslaving you to the constant performance of empty religion, which is meant to, to create a false sense of confidence that you can appease God by doing these things. Right? By confessing to a priest. By praying the rosary. By eating certain foods and abstaining from others. From making some sort of spiritual pilgrimage in your life or, or praying a certain amount of times in a certain direction each day. And as each year though passes, those people and those religions keep becoming deeper and deeper entrenched into that traditions of men. And the, the chains of captivity keep being wrapped around their, their heart and their mind more and more and more as they continue to do these things over and over again, year after year after year. But this is why the, the sin of the Gentile converts is so grievous because that at one time was their reality. They were dead in their trespasses and sin. They were shut out of the kingdom. Right? They were serving false deities as if they were God when there were no gods at all. And if they continued in that, they would have perished in their sin. And yet, what did God do for them? Right? He, he reached His hand down. And He turned their hearts from those false idols to Himself so that they might know the one true and living God. In fact, brothers and sisters, that's what He has done for every single one of us here today who believes. And how did He do it? Right, through the effectual call. Right, through the preaching of the Word. Right, we need to understand that nobody comes to saving faith 
through their own personal study and research. Right? Nobody is able to, to give themselves supernatural eyes right? to see things that no natural man can see. Right? A natural man cannot perform a supernatural work of salvation. Right? That is a work that only God can do upon the sinner. But who does he do it to? Right? Who, do, who does he do it to? Paul says, well, those whom are known by God. Right? Those who know God are those who, have been, who are known by God. You see, your knowledge of God only arises out of God's knowledge and love of you. Right? That's how you can know God, because God first knew you. Because God sovereignly elected and chose you. Because God, in time and space, chose to reveal His Son to you. That you might come to know Him as Father. That you might come to, to love Him as such. And so when Paul preaches the word then, on that first missionary journey in southern Galatia, he was convinced that these saints knew God. Right? And that God knew them. But look at what Paul says has become of them. He says, though they've now turned to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. You see, Paul is baffled. Right? He's in disbelief. Because when he came and he preached to them, they, they knew the true doctrine of justification by faith alone. Right? They confessed their own unworthiness and their own sinfulness. They, they confessed that they were unable to save themselves. And now Paul says, look at what you're doing. You're, you're trying to earn God's favor by submitting to regulations again, to returning to slavery. And so it astounds Paul that, that they would do this. It's like a person you know, who lives on the street and who sleeps on a park bench and who eats food out of the garbage cans that he finds, who is brought from that environment and, and taken into someone's home. Right, and given food and given drink and given clothes and given roof and shelter and a warm bed to lie in. And that person does so graciously, not asking for a thing. And yet in the middle of the night, you get up and you go back to the streets because you'd rather have something that, you, that you've earned by your own hand than to receive this wonderful and gracious gift from another. Right? This is what though God has done from all, for all of us, hasn't he? He has, he has brought us in from the street. He has graciously poured out all of His blessings upon us. And now, what are these Gentile converts going to do? They prefer the work of their own hand to the grace of God. And so they are turning back now to these weak and worthless things again. Returning to the streets from which God brought them from. While Gentiles... And before coming to saving faith, before that first meeting with Paul, these Gentile converts were people who once worshipped false deities, right? They were already in enslavement once before. So this is why Paul says, now they are returning to being enslaved again. Only this time they're going to be enslaved another way. Right? Not maybe through serving these false deities through these rituals, but rather now they are going to be enslaved to the one true living God, but through old covenant customs, right? bringing themselves back unto enslavement as new covenant Christians who ought to be living in the liberty of Christ. One author says, 
this concerning what the Gentile converts are doing. He says, we may admire the ingenuity of the architect displayed in the construction of the scaffolding for the erection of a palace. But when the palace is completed, what before was necessary is an eyesore and we wish to have it removed. For a time, that scaffolding while you're erecting that building is necessary. And it's profitable, isn't it? But once the palace has been erected, the scaffolding is no more. Right? It's, it's, it's not useful to you anymore. It's, it's unprofitable. And this is what Paul is saying that the Gentile converts are doing. Right? They are going back to the scaffolding. When the palace has already been erected. When Christ has already come. When the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament customs and ceremonies and rites is now here. Right? They want to return to the old covenant Jewish calendar to do what? To observe festivals and, and new moons and Passovers and the Feast of Tabernacles. All of this Christ came and already fulfilled. Right? Did they really think that, that doing this was going to garner God's favor and love towards them? Do we understand though why Paul then says in verse 11, I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Here he shows his concern by these words. Right? The purpose of the preacher is to lead. To lead people. The purpose of the pastor is to help them to, to understand and to believe what is true about Christ. So that they might more thoroughly enjoy all of the privileges they have in Him. But now that, that belief, they don't seem to have anymore. Right? The truth that they once confessed, they don't seem to confess anymore. And so Paul is saying, if they don't believe what is true, they don't confess Christ anymore, and they aren't true sons and daughters of the living God, all that I've done has been in vain. Right? The, the end for why a preacher preaches is to bring Christ to you. Right? What makes a preacher happy is to see God's people reconciled to God, to see sinners being brought near to Christ. And if that hasn't been done, amongst these saints, Paul says, my labor must have been in vain. But what worries Paul, though, is not only that their belief in the message has, has changed, but what also concerns Paul and worries him is that it seems that the attitude towards the preacher likewise has changed as well. Look with me starting at verse 12. Paul says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you, if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? This leads us to our second point in this morning which we'll call Paul's concern over lack of love. Paul's concern over lack of love. Here in, in Paul's opening word in verse 12, right, brothers, he wants to make these saints aware that his love for them has not wavered. Right? That's what he's doing when he's calling them brothers. Right? He is unwilling yet to believe 
that these people that he preached the gospel to are not his brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, the words in verse 12 that follow brothers have been variously interpreted. Where he says, I entreat you become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. Some people interpret that to mean Paul saying, believe as I believe. Others interpret Paul here to be saying, conduct yourselves as I conduct myself. But I think in the context of the passage, what Paul is urging them to do is, is regard me with the same loving affection that I now regard you with. I think that's what Paul's saying to them here. Paul's asking the saints to, to let go of any of that anger towards them that these Judaizing teachers have stirred up within their hearts. And he's calling upon them to remember that, that sweet love and tender affection that they had toward him at one time as their brother in the Lord and as their pastor. Many of us, I think, have been in Paul's shoes. We, we know what, what Paul is experiencing here and what he's feeling. Uh, and what I mean by that is this. Uh, oftentimes we can, we can do things to harm people and deserve kind of getting the, the cold shoulder. Uh, but at least when they give us the cold shoulder, we, we know what we did, right? Uh, we know that we said something or did something that was wrong, and so we know what we have to do to make it right, that we can go to them in repentance and seek forgiveness. Uh, but there are also times, though, right, when people give you a, the cold shoulder, the, the, the stiff arm, the side eye, Right, whether that be a spouse, a friend, even somebody in church, but you have no idea why. You don't know what you've done. Right, that's what Paul is, is feeling here from these saints. He, he has no idea what he did to deserve this from them. But what I want us to see is, is how does Paul deal with it? Right, Paul, being a spiritual father to these saints, deals with it by taking the initiative to first assure them of His love for them. That's what Paul does. They're not showing Him love. And so what does Paul do? He takes the initiative to remind them of His love towards them. That His feeling of love towards them remains the same. This is why he says to them, you did me no wrong. Because they did do Him wrong, didn't they? But we need to understand, that's not Paul's point when he says, you did me no wrong. Right? They did him wrong when they turned from the truth of the gospel. They did him wrong when they changed their attitude towards him. But what Paul's saying when you did me no wrong is everything that you did when you did that did not cause me now to resent you or to decrease my love for you. Right? That's what Paul's conveying to them when he says that. As one author puts it, the apostle acts in reference to the Galatians on the same principle on which God acts in reference to sinful man. He seeks to cure their dissatisfaction with Him by displaying His affection towards them. Think about, brothers and sisters, if every local body lived with that principle in mind. Think about what the church would look like today if that were the case. Certainly, there are preachers out there who today, if laboring over a flock, uh, were treated the way that Paul was. Unkind, without respect, without honor, being abandoned practically. Right? They would harshly come after those church members. Right? And in a sense, they, 
they would probably say they had a, a good reason to do it. So they say, look at they, they have sinned. And so it's, it's my job to, to kind of correct them of that sin. And so they kind of use that as an excuse or an explanation for coming down hard on people the way that they do. I think even us, right? We can be guilty of that, right? We think just because someone gives us a reason to find fault with them, that it's okay that we kind of you know, come down on them harshly and make sure that we, we scold them and we make them know what it is that they have done. But see that love. right? See this love. God's love. The love that Paul exercises towards the saints as being an understanding love. Right? God's love. This love. The love that Paul exhibits. The love that we ought to exhibit towards one another is an understanding love. Right? A good pastor. A good parent. A good employer understands that those whom they have been entrusted care over are people with problems. People with problems. Intellectual problems. Moral problems. Personal problems. They are people with anxieties and fears and worries and things that distress them that hold them back in many ways. And what Paul the pastor is doing is is looking beyond those things. He's looking beyond their weaknesses, beyond their failings, even ones that affected him. Because what was most important to Paul in this time is not to tear them down with harsh language and words. But what Paul's purpose here in doing is is to recapture those flickering flames, those little embers of love for Paul that still remain in the hearts of those saints. And the way that he is going to do it is not by coming down on them harshly, but, but, but by reminding them of His love for them, but also reminding them of that love that they once had for Him as well. And while reflecting on that, Paul speaks of this bodily ailment that he had when he first came and preached the Word to them. Now, Paul's not specific as to what that bodily ailment was. Some people theorize perhaps it was an eye issue. Uh, which is why Paul says that they would have plucked out an eye and, and give it to him if it, if it was possible. But that statement to pluck out an eye and give it to me if it was possible is, you know, ought to be seen as kind of a, an equivalent statement to give me the shirt off his back. And that's kind of what that statement means. It's not a, a literal expression, but rather a, a figurative one that means to express that at that time these people would have done anything for Paul. And anything that he needed, they would have provided and gave to him. Right? That was the, the saint's attitude towards Paul while he was suffering from this infirmity. Right? Their response was not to despise him, but rather to love him and to receive him. And to do so as if he was an angel of the Lord, as Jesus Christ himself. What they mean by that, or what he means by that, is with how affectionately they received him. Right? That affection that they showed showed towards Him. It's the same affection they would have showed towards an angel of the Lord or or Jesus Christ Himself. And to Paul, that was evidence that that these people were saints, that they were believers. It was evidence to Paul that they were children of God because who can exhibit that kind of love but one who has Christ dwelling inside of them? Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, "A, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. 
you also are to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so they love Paul immensely. Why did they love Paul so immensely? Well, because it was from Paul's lips right, that they learned of salvation. And Paul rejoiced in that love towards him as they reciprocated that love towards one another. Which really is a picture of what, of what pastors and church members ought to be doing. Right? There ought to be that reciprocal love being shown. The first meeting between Paul and these saints is a, is a beautiful picture of the effect that the gospel ought to have in churches when it is proclaimed and when it is preached. Right? But now what Paul says is that that love that they once had towards him is forgotten. And now they are viewing and treating Paul as if he is an enemy. And this raises Paul's level of concern. Then why? Well, what does John say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is why Paul is concerned. Because if this is how they feel towards him, then the fact is that they don't have a eternal life abiding in them. Right? Paul's concerned with them. Why? Because what they are doing is what the unbelieving Jews had done throughout all of history, which is to despise and reject the ministers of God. And why is that? Because Paul brought them the truth. Because the enemies of Paul have poisoned these people against them so that they did not regard Paul as their pastor any longer or as their friend, but rather have set these Judaizing teachers up in their hearts now as their pastors and as their friend. Isn't it strange, as we read this, to see that the very thing that made Paul attractive to these people, the very thing that made them love Paul so much, the truth, the Gospel, is the very thing that Paul proclaims that now makes them not love him, and in fact cause him to become their enemy? I mean, don't we see that the the gospel, brothers and sisters, is a word that, that brings together those that believe, doesn't it? But the gospel also is a message that divides. Right? It divides the believer from the unbeliever. But all that Paul wants to demonstrate in pointing out the error and pointing out their sin is that I want to prove my love to you by, by doing this. Right? That's what Paul's trying to do by pointing out these errors and these sins. He's saying this is the truest form of friendship. Right, to point out to you the truth. Right, not to allow you to continue to go down the path of lies. Right, that is what true friendship is. Right, true friendship is not flattery. Right, true friendship is not just telling someone what they want to hear. True friendship is telling them the truth. And so as Paul declares this to them, as he pens this letter and as it's being read to them, right, it's meant to to be a demonstration to them of His true friendship towards them, of His true love towards them. But I want us to understand that a, a minister is no good, of, he is of no value if he seeks to hide the truth from you because he desires to be popular amongst God's people. Right? A minister does no good to you and he does not follow through in his calling if he does not speak truth because he wants to be loved and appreciated by men. Right? The truth of the matter is this, though, brothers and sisters, that every minister that takes up the call realizes that they're not going to be loved by everyone. Right? They realize that 
that there are going to be people in their congregation that don't like them. Right? That, that don't love them in the way that they love their congregation. That don't care for them the way that their pastor cares for them. Right? That wish that their pastor did something different, said something different, acted in a different way. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, that's not why ministers come and stand up in the pulpit. And that's not why, why Paul preached either, was it? No, we stand up in the pulpit and we, we preach the truth of God's Word first because we've been appointed to do so. But then secondly, what drives us to stand up in the pulpit and proclaim the truth of God's Word is to see people grow. right? To see God's people being sanctified by the Word. Right? What drives the minister is seeing you draw closer and closer in your relationship to Christ. Right? What drives the minister is seeing sinners being saved by the Gospel, not having people appreciate you. Right? Not pat on the back and, and that a boys. Right? That's not why the minister preaches God's Word. And this is why then Paul is able to look past all of these offenses that have been directed toward him. Why he is able to look past the fact that his love for them is not being reciprocated. And not go, okay, well, you're not going to show me love. Well, neither will I show you love. Right? But rather, he continues to, to pour out his heart upon these saints. Right? Don't doubt for a second, brothers and sisters, that the, the happiest churches and the healthiest churches, though, are churches where this reciprocal love exists. Right? And this is why Paul wants to get back there. Right? He wants to get back to this point, And he continues to demonstrate that as we... We read further along in his letter. Look with me at verse 17. Here Paul says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth unto Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Right, here is our third and our final point then this morning that we will conclude with, and we'll call it uh, Paul's concern that they've been taken advantage of. Paul's concern that they have been taken advantage of. Paul says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. Right, what Paul is doing here now is exposing the evil motives of the false teachers. Right? They've attached themselves to the saints in the churches of Galatia and have pretended to love and care for these saints as Paul does. But they don't love for, they don't love the saints like Paul does because they don't love the saints and desire for the saints to grow in Christ, but rather they are pretending to care and love the saints so that they might boast in what they have done. Right? That they might glory in, in bringing the saints back under the bondage of Judaism as they are. Why is that though? Well, because they were jealous of the Gentile converts. Right? They were, they were jealous of the liberty that the Gentile converts had. They were jealous of the liberty of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. Right? They didn't like it that, that Paul said that the believer is no longer under the old letter of the law that kills, but now under the, the newness that the Spirit brings. Right? They were jealous seeing that. In fact, that's probably a better way of translating that phrase. They make much of you. Probably better to translate that they are jealous of you. Or they are, or they zealously affect you. Right? But we need to see that these Judaizing teachers were jealous of them, or had this 
this zeal for them, but not for a good reason, right? For an evil reason. They weren't doing it because they love Christ. They weren't doing it because they love the church. I remember what Paul says, that it was the Judaizers that wanted to shut you out. Remember, that's what Paul rebukes Peter for in in Galatians chapter 2. When they break fellowship with the Gentile converts and all of the the Judaizers and, and Peter sit together. Right? They, they, they did that for a reason, so that the Gentile converts would then become jealous of them and want what they have and say, well, we want to be where you are. We want to be able to sit with you. Please teach us this knowledge that you have. What are we to do? How are we to follow God? Show us the way. Right? That's what these Judaizers te- teachers wanted. Now, the fact that the saints were being made much of is not the issue. Right? This is why Paul says in verse 18, it's always good to be made much of, but for a good purpose. Right? The issue is that they were doing it for an evil purpose. But zeal for the saints is a good thing if it has the proper ends, right? which is the glory of God, the advancement of the kingdom, the, the good of the church. Right? It's that zeal that causes Paul to say in verse 19 and 20, My little children, for whom I, I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Right, here don't we see Paul addressing them in the, in the most tender and gentle of terms. Right, he calls them, my little children. Right, my little children. But the reason for Paul's worry, uh, the reason why Paul is so troubled, he tells us, is because he desires more than anything to see Christ formed in them. And right now, he doesn't see that. He doesn't see Christ formed in them. And so he, he bears with anguish over them because of that. Right? There are many teachers today who say things and who do things so that the people in the pews would go out into the world and go, boy, you wouldn't believe what my pastor said today. You, know, you wouldn't believe what my pastor did. You won't believe how, how wise and smart and wonderful my pastor is. That's because they want to be made, made much of. Right? They want to be known. They want to be elevated. They want to be highly esteemed. Right? But let us see that the pastor who steps in the pulpit does not seek to lift himself up, but lift Christ up. Right? That's what Paul is trying to do. He wants Christ to be formed in them. Right? John Calvin said this, If ministers wish to be something, let them labor to form Christ and not themselves in their hearers. Profound, isn't it? Simple but profound. The Judaizers, what they are guilty of, is trying to form themselves in these Gentile converts. Trying to make the Gentile converts like them. What Paul is doing and what Paul is desirous of is to form Christ in them. Because if Christ is formed in you, that means you're a believer. Right? If Christ is formed in you, it means that you have the mind of Christ. Right? If Christ is formed in you, it means you speak the words of Christ, that you think like Christ, that you live and act like Christ. That's what Paul is concerned with. Certainly, we're not going to see that done perfectly in the life of the saints. But it is something that has begun in you. 
That it's a process that will continue in you until the end. But, but it's this desire that causes Paul to feel this anguish like a mother in childbirth. Right? He felt that anger, that anguish the first time that he came to them when they were unbelievers. And now he feels that anguish again, unsure if they are truly converted. But that's what he desires to do. This is why he wants to come to them so bad. I wish I could be present with you and change my tone. Right? He wants to see the state of things for himself. Right? He wants to be able to gauge right, their true feelings towards him. But he also wants to express face-to-face his love for them. Right? He wants to face-to-face comfort them with his words. See all that Paul is concerned with then. And if Paul is this concerned with these things concerning them, how much more should they be concerned with these things about themselves? And yet they're not. But let us learn something from that. Right? That, that it's oftentimes those Christian professors who spend no time seeking to preserve the good gifts of God inside of them who end up like these Gentile converts. Right? It's, it's professors who neglect Right, the good things that God imparts to His people who end up just like these Gentile confessors. Right, those who have no desire for Christ to be formed in you more today than He was in you yesterday. This is why, though, every single one of us here today ought to take time to search our life and examine ourselves that each one of us might learn the very worst about ourselves. It's only when you know the the worst things about yourself that you can deal with them, which is to go to God in prayer, to seek His strength, that He might help you. right? To, To not uncover those things and to allow them to lie dormant in you is a way to help yourself destroy yourself. right? These Gentile converts are like many of us, if not all of us, aren't they? It's easy for us to get on a pattern, maybe a Bible reading pattern, a prayer pattern, to feel good about ourselves, and all of a sudden, to backtrack. That's what these Gentile saints did. It's it's even what the Israelites did. If you remember our reading of the the law last week, uh, remember that that God had the Israelites spy out the land of Canaan. That's the land flowing with milk and honey He was going to give to them. And when that that land was right before their eyes, what did they want to do? They wanted to turn back and and return to Egyptian captivity. Isn't that what what people continually do? God gives them freedom and we want to go back to captivity. So I ask you today, what do you struggle going back to that will bring you into bondage? What in your life do you struggle with that, that if you go back to, it's going to bring you into bondage once more? Too often, brothers and sisters... As Christians, we forget who we are, which is pictured in our text today. Right? What do we see in these Gentile converts? We see that as a people, we are a disaster. Even as believers, we are a disaster. That we still invent ways to make ourselves feel holier than others. That we are a people that lack love. That we are a people that despise truth and correction. That even though we talk about how unworthy we are, we act contrary to that confession. Which is why we oftentimes count up 
our our pluses, right? our good works and our bad works, and we size ourselves up with others. And we say, well, my pluses outweigh their pluses. My minuses are less than their minuses, so there's something that's better about me than them. Not understanding that none of those things make you a child of God. What makes one a child of God is what these Gentile converts lost sight of. And that's faith alone in Christ, right? who makes us a child of God by based on His efforts and His merits alone. Let us not forget that the Gospel is a declaration of glad tidings and joy. But the Gospel is also a declaration that you and I are failures. That's what the Gospel is. It's a declaration that you and I are failures. That's why the world hates it so much. Because the world wants to be told, I'm good. The world wants to be told I'm worthy, right? That I'm smart, that I'm great, that I'm strong. And the gospel says the exact opposite, right? The gospel says that you are wretched. The gospel causes us to recognize the ugliness of our sin. The gospel calls us to to die to ourselves and accept the the fact that every single one of us today are, are failures. But the good news of the Gospel, though, what it also causes us to recognize, though, is, is that although we are failures, God is not. Right? And, and Christ is not. And because of Christ and His work of redemption, we have forgiveness of sin and righteousness that comes through faith so that we no longer need to look back to those weak and worthless things because we have found acceptance with God only because we have found it in Christ. And because of Christ, we can be confident that we are someone who are God's. Right? Who God has, has set apart to spend eternal glory with because God chose you to form His Son in you. And God continues to form that Son in you until the end. And in that, knowledge of that, all of God's people ought to rejoice. Let us do so in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, Lord, we recognize our, our sinfulness, how woefully short we fall of Your perfect standard of righteousness, how even as believers we continually turn our backs to the Gospel and, and seek to, to find acceptance and favor with God through various means. Uh, Lord, we pray that You would forgive us of this sin. We likewise ask, Lord, that You would help us to um, see our need for Christ, that we would continue to uh, appropriate uh, Christ to ourselves each day, that we would continue to look to the blessings of Christ and have them uh, applied to us by the work of the Spirit. Uh, Lord, we pray, seeing the weakness of, of believers, that that You would help our own weaknesses, that we would not be a people who would turn from the Gospel, that we would not be a people who turn from our love for one another, uh, that we would not be a people who would allow ourselves to be taken advantage of by false teachers, but rather You would help us to, to stand in Your truth, that You would help us to persevere in love towards You and neighbor. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.